This podcast brought to you by Hope 103.2. The Hope Book Club with Katrina Rowe and Natasha Moore because life's just better with a book. Thanks for pressing play on the Hope Book Club podcast with Katrina Rowe and Natasha Moore from the Centre for Public Christianity. We're talking memoirs in this episode. Natasha has been reading Airhead, The Imperfect Art of Making News by Emily Maitlis, a journalist who's interviewed everyone from Donald Trump and Tony Blair to the Dalai Lama and Russell Brand. The Diary of a Bookseller by Sean Bithell. Uh, He's the owner of Scotland's largest second-hand bookshop and he shares the trials and tribulations of life in the book trade. And I've been reading China Blonde, the memoir of Australian TV journalist Nicole Webb about her two and a half years living in mainland China. Let's kick things off with Airhead by Emily Maitlis. When I interviewed President Clinton, I was allowed to do so only on condition of an extraordinary deal we had made with his team that morning. You'll understand why when you read that chapter. I never expected to have to provide Donald Trump with my home address. I never expected to have just 10 minutes notice before interviewing the British Prime Minister. I never expected to end up in a room full of male strippers talking about the Me Too movement. I never expected to be drinking red wine at Steve Bannon's kitchen table. I never expected to spend a bank holiday Monday stuck in a lift with Alan Partridge or to meet the Dalai Lama at the prestige suite of an airport hotel. I never expected to feel empathy for a white woman who thought she was black. And I certainly never expected to be surrounded by 20,000 Hong Kong students chanting, Thank you, BBC, in unison when we turned up to cover the umbrella democracy protests one long, humid summer. We had to shush them before our filming was ruined. In other words, there was much that was never conveyed through the interviews we showed on tape. Unlike print... There is no room for annotation or commentary as you go along. What appears on screen is what people see. Everything else is just interpretation. When I chose the title of this book, Airhead, I did so with some trepidation. It's not my intention to reduce what I do to the cliché of a TV broadcaster with an empty brain. It is my attempt to invert it, to explore the broadcaster's state of mind in those moments before, during and after the camera's roll. What happens when things don't go according to plan, but your mouth has to keep on moving? What happens when your reputation stands or falls on how you phrase your next question? What happens when the camera stops rolling and the shouting in the room starts? What happens when you wake up in the dead of night shouting, No, 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 reliving a cringeworthy TV exchange of your own making? This, then, airhead, is my attempt to explain what goes on in those moments of utter panic, living, breathing, hyperventilating and overthinking the seconds when you're about to go live on air, and you don't have a clue how it will turn out. Emily Maitlis is the host of the BBC flagship current affairs programme, 
Newsnight. Her memoir, Airhead, The Imperfect Art of Making News, is about how news is made and all the things that go on behind the scenes. There's also a considerable amount of name dropping because she has to interview so many famous people as part of the job. Hi, Natasha. Hey, Katrina. Can you tell us a bit about Emily Maitlis and her career? Because I hadn't heard of her before. I hadn't heard of her either, actually. I just saw somebody on Twitter who was like, y'all got to read this book. Like, this is just, you know, a real kind of insight into what it's like to be at the heart of all these stories that happen. Obviously, some of it was written for people who are used to seeing her on the news and have for decades. But I really enjoyed it even that not being my experience. And almost there was a novelty to that because I'm like, I don't know who you are, but oh, look, texting Emma Thompson, trying to get her to do this interview about me too. And, (laughs) you know, here you are hanging out with Bill Clinton for a couple of days in India to do with his foundation. And, um, you know, she goes and interviews the Chippendales, uh, also about me too, in Las Vegas. And so really interesting stories. So it's not a memoir as such, like it's not kind of a let me tell you about my career from, you know, start to finish. It's really snapshots. And then there's one chapter in it where she talks about becoming the story herself Um, and she sort of assumes that if you know who she is, then you would know this story um, because I think it's quite high profile in that context, maybe in the UK, was that she had a stalker, has had a stalker for like decades since she was at uni Um, and so uh, she kind of got involved with the story where they were trying to bring in legislation to kind of clamp down on some of this behavior but the ways that that's affected her family and um, and she was like I've talked about that elsewhere and I don't want this to be about me and my like this sob story but I care about you know victims kind of getting justice on this and being able to kind of get on with their lives. And and this is what it was like to be interviewed for this instead of to be the interviewer and the one trying to get people to relive their trauma and all that kind of thing. Mm. So what's the focus of the book? Uh, it's really on what's happening behind the camera. So, I mean, I guess she has perhaps experienced some frustration that people kind of assume that everything that happens on camera is deliberate and planned out. And if this is happening, then that's because that's exactly what they wanted to happen. And um, whereas a lot of it is chaos and they get what they can and they're often scrambling and they're not perfect. So some of that is hilarious, you know, things that just go wrong. Um, Some of it is really kind of just heavy, you know, when she's woken up at two in the morning from a phone call um, and she's just gotten back to the UK from two weeks in Washington. She's exhausted, but they're like, you need to get on a train to go to Paris because there's been a terrorist attack and you need to go and cover it. Um, And, you know, the migrant crisis and protests in Hong Kong and all these like really significant events that she's there for um, and really moved by. But also you have to do things like we need to get access to this locked building because we're going live in 10 minutes and we can't get to the place where we need to shoot. I think, you know, I found that kind of stressful. Like I don't think I would flourish in that role, (laughs) personally speaking, but also really cool that you're like, oh, yeah, Nobody knows what they're doing and we're all just kind of doing our best and muddling through, right? Oh, look, my, my husband worked in live TV news for years. He's only just actually moved out of that field and the stories of the near misses and disasters <laughs> just, yeah, it's not for the faint-hearted. Now, she's interviewed a lot of very famous people. Mm. Can you share with us one memorable celebrity encounter in the book? 
Well, there are a number. You know, she talks to the Dalai Lama and it's kind of a bit, I guess, bemused by him, like can't really, like he giggles a lot and she can't really get through the exterior. She talks to David Attenborough and absolutely loves that. Um, she interviews Russell Brand, who I'm not really a fan of, but this, the conversation is really interesting. I think um, one of the early chapters is about um, her first kind of encounters with Donald Trump. So well before he was president, she was interviewing him for a documentary, I think, and he invited her to come to the Miss USA pageant, um, which he had, you know, bought and was running and so on. Just how surreal that context is where she's talking to Donald Trump about this pageant and you have looming over that everything that would later come out, you know, the fact that he's later going to be president, the um, the things that at the time she's like, okay, he's saying a lot of things that aren't true um, and making a lot of bombastic claims and, but, you know, for the sake of TV, like I'm not going to kind of pull him up. These aren't things that matter that much, but now she's like, hey, it matters a lot that this person mm. tells the truth or doesn't actually. Yeah, that one was quite, and, and actually her encounters with the women themselves in the beauty pageant, um, who she expected to be these airheads um, and who answer these quite demanding questions and actually have some quite significant ambitions and just kind of her looking back on that experience with some amusement as well. Mm. Do you get any real insight into what makes good journalism or about the craft of making live TV? I think I was um, like quite impressed with, you know, the interview skills. And this is something that I do a bit because my colleagues and I, you know, have a podcast called Life and Faith. And it's not a kind of, we don't do, you know, gotcha kind of journalism at all. It's a podcast, you know, you're talking to people, you're, try- you're trying to understand their stories. You're not kind of trying to hold politicians to account or anything. But the way that she navigates an interview and is trying to kind of make a call as she goes about how hard to push and um, whether to go for the jugular or not um, and doing that in a professional way and treating the other person as a human but also being aware of her responsibilities and what the audience like, you know, the things that it would be ridiculous not to ask someone who's in that position. Mm. Um, I found all that really interesting. Um, And also, you know, again, her sense with that that like, she's just not as in control of there are so many factors there and she can be amazing at her job, but it doesn't necessarily mean that things will go the way you want them to. And I think also her, um, she talks about regrets um, and being like, ah, why did I ask that? What? And waking up in the night and having those like cringe moments of like, I can't believe I said that on air or whatever. Um, and I find that kind of reassuring that that's, an experience we all have about yeah. things that we say or don't say. Mm-hmm. Um, a few of the reviews that I read um, said that it's not really a memoir because there's nothing personal in there. Do you think it would be a better book if she shared more of herself? I think it would be a different book, right? So it depends what you want. I mean, I didn't know who she was. So if it had been that, I wouldn't have bought it because that I don't think that would have been what I was after, even though it might be like an excellent book and her life might be fascinating. But because I was like, oh, I kind of care about the making of news and how journalism works and how interviews are done, um, how the sausage is made, you know, (laughs) each chapter is only a few pages. It's just kind of all anecdotes, but it's also 
uh, kind of snapshots of things that matter, you know, even interviews that she's done over years, but that have continued to matter, the issues that we care about, like now. That was what I wanted from the book. Our next book is The Diary of a Bookseller by Sean Bithell, the owner of Scotland's largest secondhand bookshop, shares the trials and tribulations of life in the book trade. So what problems does he have? Well, mainly the customers. Uh, The ranting of a man who shot a Kindle and mounted it on his wall is probably going to make for an entertaining read, I would guess. Natasha, you would think that living in a small coastal town and running a secondhand bookshop would be the perfect life. Wouldn't you? <laughs> I would, though. Mm, to be fair, maybe not in Scotland's climate. <laughs> I, I think I'd need somewhere a little more uh, tropical. But yes, it does sound idyllic, doesn't it? Mm, it does. So, why do the customers drive Sean crazy? <laughs> well, I mean, it is. It isn't just the customers. Actually, the whole. I think one of the valuable things but also one of the charming things about this book is that he's like hey it's not as romantic as it sounds here's what it's like to actually run a secondhand bookshop it's a business in a struggling industry and there's a lot of rubbish that goes along with it so you think that you spend a lot of time like sitting around reading books and talking to lovely customers about what books they want to read Um, whereas actually he spends a lot of time like wrangling with Amazon and the post office and you know people coming in trying to like sell him books that he can't sell on and dealing with um, repairs on the shop which is you know a very kind of old large, charming, but falling apart house. Um, And so there's just a lot about it that's kind of not the dream, let's say. Okay. Can you tell us what the bookshop is like? Can you sort of take us there? If we were on holidays and we're wandering through it, what would we experience? Well, it sounds like a wonderful shop. I really want to go there now. Wigtown is actually, it's a book town, So it's one of those towns where like a whole bunch of bookstores have come along and set up and they have like a literary festival a couple of times a year. And so it's kind of a, it's rejuvenated the economy a little bit of the town to have all these bookshops and to have tourists coming through for the sake of the books. There are like these concrete spirals outside the door of um, Sean's bookshop um, and then all these different kind of rooms. The thing about it that I think I would want to go there, but only in the summer to the extent that Scotland has something we would recognise as summer is that, like, he doesn't heat it because they can't afford to. So, like, one of his employees comes throughout the winter in her ski suit because the the shop is so arctic and I'm like, I just, I can't, no. 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 Don't they have no. fireplace? So they have a fireplace but I guess it's a really big old drafty house so it's, you know, sort of idyllic and sort of not. Oh, I'm so torn now. I really want to go there, (laughs) but I don't want to freeze. Well, let's go when it's warm. Okay, sure. (laughs) Go for the festival. Okay. So what kind of issues does Sean face with running this bookshop and with the industry more widely? Um, Amazon is a big issue. At the beginning of each month of the diary, he um, quotes from George Orwell from something he wrote called Bookshop and Memories because George Orwell apparently worked in a bookshop for a while and wrote about how horrendous it is and how the customers are just the worst. (laughs) Um, So Sean kind of sympathises with that and writes about that as well. But, you know, like and 
I'm kind of astounded, actually. There are things that, you know, he'll have customers come to him and there'll be a book that's like two pounds and they'll ask if they can have it cheaper. And you're like, <laughs> really? <laughs> or people will kind of be like, oh, this is secondhand. I think it should be cheaper. And he's like, well, look on Amazon. It's like, like you can't get a version online for cheaper than this. Like this is how much this book is worth. But they kind of feel like it should be cheap. Use a second hand. Um, or people will come in and like ask things and spend hours browsing and then be like, I can get it on Amazon. I'm going to do that. And he's like, you know, pain. thanks. Thanks. Um, and even just the ridiculous things that people ask. You know, he describes one guy who has been looking for this particular book in bookstores for like 10 years and is like, do you have it? And he's like, yes, we have it. And it's four pounds. And he's like, oh, it's too expensive. And you're like, <laughs> what? <laughs> What? <laughs> so just the absurdity. Oh, no. Does this mean that we should never buy a book online again? Is that what you felt after you read it? I don't know. I mean, I certainly felt like I, I do believe in supporting local bookstores and particularly like I'm a bit outraged at, you know, books in the UK are a lot cheaper than they are here. And this is a secondhand bookstore. The books are like extra cheap. Mm. Um I once yeah. had someone tell me when I published my first picture book and I was super proud, you know, because it was my first book published and it was $20 <laughs> and someone at my church said, too expensive, not buying it. And I was like, are you kidding me? I spent <laughs> years working for this and 20 bucks is too much for you. Like you buy a DVD for 20 bucks and did back in the day, you know, and you yeah. watch it twice and this book will be yeah. read like a hundred times by your child. <laughs> and in a secondhand bookshop, it'll be five dollars. And <laughs> oh, I don't know, Natasha. Why won't people pay for books? Well, anyway. I want lots of books, right? So I also want them to be cheap. But <laughs> there, I had some existential moments reading this book, partly because you know I have just moved house, um, and so I was reading this. Uh, while also thinking quite a bit about my own book collection and what fits on my shelves and how to arrange them and all that kind of thing. And he spends a lot of time in the book driving around to the houses of people who, I mean, either elderly people who are moving, like downsizing, or the relatives of deceased people who are like, I need to get rid of this book collection. Can you take this stuff um and so his reflections on like oh well this was all trash or this was you know valuable or I can take this but I can't take these ones and I'm like wow like just thinking about my book collection and what he would think of it and whether it's trash or like and what will happen with all these books that I'm accumulating when I die and it'll just be someone else's problem. And like, <laughs> Natasha, I've been doing this with my parents. So they're selling really? the family home and we've been cleaning oh. out their entire book collection. It's quite sad to part with them actually. Um, mm. So Natasha, who do you think would enjoy this book? Is it just for book lovers? I mean, certainly book lovers will enjoy it. Um, I think... Probably people who want to know some stuff about Scotland um, and what life is like in Scotland. Like it's quite enjoyable for that. There's all these kind of local quirky characters and just life in this small town um, in kind of a bit of a backwater, kind of away from anywhere um, and, the you know, weather being horrific and so on, but also this lovely kind of life and community that he has there. So, yeah, I think travel, books and grumpiness maybe. 
He's, Sounds he's good like on the grumpiness. The book for me. I love Scotland. <laughs> I love books. And being grumpy go. is so much fun. Makes it look fun. (laughs) Okay. So, Natasha, I have spent a couple of months reading the fifth Harry Potter book, Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. It is a very... Is it your first time? Yeah. Ah. Yeah. Ah. Finally. Finally, right? Because I just couldn't get to this book. It's so thick and I'd look at it and go, oh, I'm never going to have time to read that. So, in the end, (laughs) I just decided, because it's been years that I've been mm. meaning to read it. So I just went, you know what, I'm going to audio book this one just to get past book five and then I'll go back to reading. <laughs> but it actually turned out to be quite therapeutic for me. Oh, how because so? Because I have a teenager in my house. It's the first time in my life since I was a teenager that I have lived with a teenager and I'm finding it extremely challenging to live <laughs> with the ups and downs of teenaged angst, teenage anger, Ooh, teenage emotion. Mood. And yeah. so somehow reading Harry's anger, his frustration, mm. his illogical way of thinking, you know, was just comforting. It made me feel a little bit better <laughs> about life. Harry Potter. Yeah. Oh. It, so it was therapeutic for me because I sort of oh went, okay, I can see my situation more clearly now and I understand a bit better how teenagers feel. So, yeah. Wow. What about you? Have you ever read what a book that That's was... why she wrote it. Um, <laughs> I think me... she must have been going through it when she wrote it because I feel like it was <laughs> maybe therapy for her as well. Yeah, first-hand experience. <laughs> mm. I'm like, this woman really gets teenagers, man. Yeah. <laughs> um, have you got a book that was therapy for you? I think – Maybe these are opposite ends of the spectrum, but like on one end, I feel as though Adam Bede by George Eliot, I just found really kind of morally character building. Okay. (laughs) Um, So in terms of like, it's this amazing picture of like human conscience and how you should listen to it and of temptation and what it means to live a good life. And so I think that has been for me quite um, therapeutic in the sense of like, edifying yeah formative me understand myself um and the kind of voices in my head and mm. which ones you should listen to and which ones you shouldn't and then maybe maybe more like retail therapy that kind of therapy end of things when I just need to kind of curl up or collapse in a comfort reading and be comforted yeah that's probably Georgette Hire for me Okay, that I've kind of still therapy. never read one of those Georgia oh. Hires, but when we did oh, yeah. the book clean out at my parents, I did oh. insist she had to keep at least three Georgia Hires oh. so that I could read some when I visited. There were Georgia Hires that you didn't offer me? I thought you had them all. No, I hardly oh. have any. I've just read lots of them. My but, grandmother had oh. them all. Yeah. Oh, alas. I need to go to Lifeline and get some Georgette Hires. <laughs> I also I also salvaged um, the Elizabeth Googe, um, what's it called? <gasps> Green, Green Dolphin, Dolphin Country. Country. Yes, Yay. and there's about three or four of her books there as well. So Excellent. I'm hanging on to those, yeah. Good. Now, I also have a memoir to review this morning, yes. Natasha. Tell so me. I read China Blonde by Nicole Webb. So Nicole was a Sky News newsreader who quit her job and moved to Hong Kong initially with her husband who was a hotelier, and then they chucked their beautiful life in Hong Kong in to move to mainland China, which was a bit of a shock to the system. And Mm. even though this is not the sort of book I would normally read, I just loved the funny stories. It's very, like, relatable. You know, an Aussie living in a foreign country, trying to master the language, trying so hard to make friends, trying to 
do all the right things to try to fit in even though you stick out like a sore thumb and lots of funny stories, you know, just about how things work in China so differently to how they work here. For example? Well, like she goes to Ikea when Ikea opens up and, you know, she's thinking, well, Chinese people even want to go to Ikea. And it turns out that they don't walk through Ikea to shop like we do to look for what we want. They just go there and hang out. So there are people picnicking on the tables with their price tag, people <laughs> napping on the beds, couples snuggled up together, like patting each other's hair and like <laughs> like they're at home, basically, but in Ikea. Yeah. So, yeah, every surface was just covered with someone using the stuff. Wow. Hilarious. Hard to tell what furniture you want then. <laughs> yeah. Would you want it after they've done all that stuff on it? I don't know. So that was kind of funny, the stuff like that. Uh, one of the, the sort of recurring themes is her attempt to try to find someone who can do her blonde hair, you know, because no one knows okay, how to so dye. The title, China Blonde. Yeah, no one knows how to dye blonde hair. And even though I'm not someone who's that into getting their hair done, I probably get my hair cut like twice a year, I really related to what that represented, which for me was her struggle to try and hang on to something of herself, you know, in a city where everything is completely different and you don't know the rules and, you know, you don't have any friends and everything is just hard. I think her trying to find someone who could give her her blonde hair was just a, this sort of struggle to try and maintain some sense of self. So, yeah. So would you recommend? Yeah, yeah. It's fun, light, easy read, but it definitely does very gently give you insights into Chinese culture that I think can help us even here in Australia. Mm, great. Yeah. So, look, that's the end of episode 29 of the Hope Book Club, our memoir edition. This week we've talked about Airhead, The Imperfect Art of Making News by Emily Maitlis, The Diary of a Bookseller by Sean Bithell, and China Blonde by Nicole Webb. Thanks for listening to the Hope Book Club because life's just better with a book. Thanks for listening. Start your day with life words. Subscribe to Hope 1032's free daily email devotional at hope1032.com.au.